We return to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. Last time, kind of hurriedly, we got through the places where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it really, in you know, typical fashion, it was the thing that I was actually going to get to the last that I had the most to say about. First portions of it, I didn't really think that I was going to have all that much to say about. And then the focus was supposed to be on the garden and what you saw there. And I ended up getting somewhat rapidly ran through. But there are some things there that are really important for us to grab. The main, I think, thing, the main thing that we were trying to stress about the Garden of Gethsemane experience was the humanity of Jesus on full display there. His sorrow, his agony, his his travail that he was going through, his rejection by his disciples, his, I mean, just all these things, plus his need for companionship, need for, uh, for friends to support him in his most desperate hour, his need for prayer in his most desperate hour. You know, all of these things were just pointing to the symbol of, of who we are. Jesus in that moment was 100% human like we are. In fact, again, that's, that's kind of what he says in Hebrews, you know, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he makes the point of saying he specifically came in this manner. It behooved him, it became him, it was, it was necessary of him to come, not as God, not as a deity, not as an angel, not as a cherubim, seraphim, or any other enchanted, holy, heavenly being, but to come as us. Because it was us that he was dying for. It was us that he was saving. It was us that he was entering into a mediator role with. And it's really hard to mediate with people who you are not connected to. It's hard to be a mediator. It's, that's why when you talk about having a jury on a trial, they speak of it as a jury of your peers. Because it didn't seem right to have a jury filled with a bunch of rich aristocratic landowners while you are a poor peasant who they have no clue your struggles, your trials, your tribulations and vice versa. So that was why when, when English law and subsequently American law was set up, there was the idea of the right to a jury of your peers because your peers would understand what you're going through. Your peers would know what faults and failures you have, what issues you were facing, and things would seem a little bit more on an even keel. Whereas if you don't have an association with the person, it's hard to mediate for them. So that was kind of the, the role that Jesus was playing. And Jesus, you know, we, we see by the inspired scriptures in Hebrews, Jesus says, I did this on purpose. We talked about that, about the story of the gospel and the big, amazing story we're a part of and we get to talk about. It is not just Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected. It was Jesus came, Jesus lived for 33 years, and that whole 33 years of life was for a purpose. It wasn't just buying time. It wasn't like God needed some, you know, vacation or, you know, he just wanted to see how it was down here. It wasn't for any of those reasons. Hebrews tells us explicitly he came here on purpose. He lived here on purpose. And he lived here on the purpose of getting acquainted with our griefs, with our sorrows, with our trials, and with our temptations. 
so that it says he could be the most perfect mediator high priest there ever was. All the other mediators that came like the high priests in the Old Testament were good on the fact that they were on our level for the most part. They could commiserate. In fact, again, he says that they, those high priests were good mediators because they were from the people. He says, but they were bad mediators because they were imperfect and they couldn't get the job done. Jesus was this beautiful, you know, con- congruency of both where he was the among us, from us, knows us, but is so perfect and great and powerful that he was able to get the job done. And that's what we see here. Yes, he is 100% God. There is no lacking of his deity, even though, again, in Hebrews and in Romans, it talks about him kind of setting aside the due power and glory. It, was, it would not be considered something that he could not grasp, Okay, that the deity that he was rightfully embodying is not something that he could not take on. It wasn't it would not be considered robbery like he was stealing something from God to come in his glory and his power in his holy deified manner. He said, but he chose not to. He chose to set all that aside to come as one of us so he could die as one of us, but more importantly, so he could live as one of us. It also speaks in Hebrews that he learned obedience from coming in that role as well. Here you're going to see that in the Garden of Gethsemane and going forward. You're going to see Jesus learning obedience to the Father in these moments. And we spoke about that. You know, Jesus came in all of his humanity and he said, Lord, take this away. I, do, I can't. I, I don't. I, I, it just, it's hard. I'm not sure I want to go through this, Lord. If you could let the cup pass, let this tribulation pass. Let's do another way, man. We're pretty smart and all powerful. We created the universe. I'm sure we can find a workaround for this. And you say, if Jesus had left it there, what would the outcome have been? But notice that Jesus didn't rationalize out his position in these prayers. He didn't say, well, I really don't want to do this, but I figure that if I do it, if I, if I work this, if I, if I make this or comes up with excuses or tries to bypass or anything, he simply asked God for a favor. He asked God for a request. Father, if it be so, can you please let this cup pass from me? But what he lived off of was the obedience factor. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. The will of Jesus in all of his humanity at that moment was, is there a way we can let this pass? But the will of the Father was even in the despair, even in the trial, even in the upcoming persecution, the upcoming crucifixion, all those things, even in all that, this has to be. So it is my will as the Father that you will go through with this. So here in Matthew chapter 26, as he continues, we're going to see that continue to play out. The one thing that I wanted us to grab out of that prayer was that this is you and I. When we're in despair, trials, issues, 
We need, number one, the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, our friends like Jesus did. Hey, Peter, James, and John, y'all come with me. Come pray with me. I need your support in this moment because I'm anguishing unto death. But also, we must rely on the support of our Father who is in heaven. Okay? That's the picture you get from that. If Jesus needed it, okay? If Jesus needed it, do you think we are going to be able to get away without having it? If Jesus, the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe who faced every temptation and was able to not give in to those temptations, if you think that Jesus needed this, do you think there's any way we could argue that we don't? We need our people and we need our father. In every case. Now, I made mention a little, again, a little quickly last time about, you know, there is the the understanding almost that these prayers that Jesus offered here were not answered in the way that Jesus is used to. And a lot of the times Jesus prayed prayers or Jesus spoke to the Father. And throughout the Gospels, you have these amazing moments where like God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, you know. And then you have scenes of Jesus on Mount of Transfiguration talking to, you know, Moses and to Elijah and God's there. And you get all this kind of there's no communication barriers between God, the Father, God, the Son and everyone else involved. You don't see any of that in this scene. Say, well, maybe it just wasn't recorded. Well, if you read Psalm 22, you get the idea that this is one of these occasions that, again, speaks to our humanity mixed with his. That there's times in life we're going to pray to our father, succumb to his will. And we're not going to hear some audible voice or see a neon sign that says, yes, you're on the right track. We have to trust it and go by faith. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring or the words of my cries? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, am I not silent? The Psalm 22, there's more to it in that whole chapter but that those phrases my god my god why have you forsaken me they're going to come up jesus is going to say them in just a few short hours on the cross they're tying to this moment where you get this picture of jesus embodying these words these prophetic words of david in crying out to the father and feeling like there is no answer being given In my moment of despair, in my moment of trial, I'm crying out in the daytime and the nighttime. And it's as if you're not hearing me. In a feeling of forsakenness. So that kind of gives you the picture. I wanted just to get into the moment of what Jesus is going through here. And this is what Jesus is going through. To the point that he almost feels like he is forsaken from the one celestial entity that he has been in constant communion with since before the world ever began. There is a human expression in this. So if you have ever been in a place where you feel like you're praying, but you don't feel like you're being heard, or you feel like your will is something opposite of the Father, or you just feel like you're in such despair and no one is listening to you, then I can say you're in great company because that's where Jesus was in this moment. 
But Jesus did not stay there on his knees and say, well, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know which way to go. I just don't know how I'm going to. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I'm just I'm so I I, I can't get a word. So I'm just going to I'm just going to give up and not move anywhere. Instead, Jesus said, no, here they come. They've come to take me. This is the will of the father. Let's go. So even in the silence that we may hear echoing, we understand that God is still, number one, not silent. But number two, he's still completely and perfectly involved in whatever the situation may be. And that's kind of where we get to in this point. In verse 41, it says, well, verse 42 He went away again the second time and prayed and saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then comes his disciple. Then came he to his disciples and said to them, sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that does betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, the same is he. And he hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend... Wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus to him, put up again your sword into its place for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Think thou not that I cannot now pray my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, in this first opening section, you have the kind of theme of the betrayer, okay? Your context of all of this is Jesus is taken into custody, the disciples flee, and Peter denies. But in this one, importantly, you see first Jesus' betrayal. The betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of the Jews, and ultimately we'll see Peter's betrayal as well. The betrayal of the disciples, that they all flee, they all left him. You also will continue to see this kind of submission of Jesus to God's will in his prayers being denied. And I know that again, that sounds like a weird thing, but that's what we're dealing with. Jesus had a prayer. He prayed a certain way for a certain thing. And God said, no, it's not the way that this is going to go. It's not how I want this to go. Jesus is also obedient to God's word. Notice how he makes mention of that over and over again as we go through this. So you have the theme here in the, the, I mean the scene here of the betrayer. Judas approaches, 
You have the men approaching as well. They're carrying their swords and their staffs or those big wooden, you know, uh, poles that they would have that they'd use to, you know, beat people up with. But what you see with this is you don't take swords and instruments of war. You don't take those things to arrest people, to take people into custody unless you have malicious intent involved with that, right? Okay. So, you know, you can think about like the scenes that you would see maybe in riots or things like that. You know, sometimes what you would see is in a policing force, all they would have with them are like maybe some mace at the worst or maybe a water cannon or maybe they just carried shields. But they carried no offensive weapons because their intent is not to beat people to death. It's just to hold the crowds at bay until whatever fervor or protest dies down. But then you see other countries, other places where malicious intent is obviously evident, okay? I mean, you can even see that like in Kent State riots here in the United States back in the 60s. You can see it back in the Selma riots. You can see all these things where there was malicious intent at the very beginning. They didn't come with a peaceful idea of let's just not let the crowd get out of hand. They came with the idea of we are going to show force. We're going to break heads. We're going to cause death. We're going to make a scene because we're going to show who's in power, who's got the force and who doesn't. So here when these guys come to arrest Jesus, they don't come in a passive defensive manner. They come in a malicious, aggressive manner. They brought their swords. They brought their staffs. If things get rowdy, they're okay with busting some heads. So you see them how they approach him from the very, very beginning. This wasn't like, well, what if Jesus gets crazy on us? Because Jesus actually says, have I not like been teaching in your temples for years now? Have you not seen me? Have I ever gotten aggressive with you? Have I ever represented myself like former fake messiahs before and tried to rabble rouse up a Jewish army to overthrow the rubble? I haven't, have I? No. So why now do you come at me in this manner? So it shows their malicious intent. But interestingly enough, and again, you know, you, you read stuff over and over again and you just get different insights different points of view every time you read through it how many times have you read through this section of scripture in matthew probably like a billion every time i read it i get something different and as i've read this over and over again the last several weeks i read it this time and i get something different as well get this picture if you can jesus has lived 33 years he's been ministering for three and a half years in all of those times has he ever done anything really negative has he ever done anything really malicious? Has he really been contrarian? And I mean contrarian in like a negative way. He's most certainly been contrarian to the Pharisees. It's just the way he was contrarian is he's like, whereas y'all are a bunch of wicked, evil people who have evil intent in your hearts. I'm just going to represent what I am. Goodness, purity, holiness, perfectness. I'm going to go around healing folks and you're going to get mad about that because I did it on a Sabbath day. I'm going to go around giving bread to people. I'm going to be feeding fish to people. I'm going to do all these crazy, loving, compassionate, merciful things. That's all he did ever. He never took up a stone and threw it at anybody. He never took up a sword and got a swing in. He never did anything like that. Yet these guards are approaching him as if he was a rebellious criminal with a history of violence well we gotta we better take our swords and our staffs because you don't know what jesus is going to do 
He may go crazy on us. He may pull out his sword. There's There's not even a record of Jesus owning a sword. There's not a record that he even carried a staff. He's never even picked up a stone. I mean, there's all these... What in the world in his history would give you the idea that he was a criminal with a dangerous, violent past? Nothing. But here's the kicker that you will catch from this. As well as testifying to their malicious intent, they're also testifying to the fact that no matter how much you may try, no matter how many great, awesome, good things you've done... People will see what they want to if they are intent on only seeing evil in someone. They can make that vision anytime they want to. No matter what good things you've done in your past. If they want to see evil in you and if they want to see evil in your actions, that's just how it will be. No matter all the good you may have done, no matter all the great things you may have done, no matter all the positive things you may have done, you cannot control the fact that if people want to see evil in you, they will see evil in you. Do we get that? Do we see that in this? Jesus, who by all accounts, no matter who you're talking to, could not come up with a single negative thing Jesus ever did. In fact, all his stories, only the things that you would ever hear about him would be like, man, he went into town and healed like 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 people. He ministered to all these people. Hey, even look at how he dealt with the Pharisees when they were so mean and saying nasty things about him. Look how he reacted. He didn't do anything. In fact, he kind of gave him a kind word and left. Those are the only things you would have had on record for Jesus. Yet these guys come at him with swords and staves because they want to see evil. They'll see evil. It is a startling testimony to the condition of our humanity. That if you want to see evil, I promise you, you can see it no matter what people have done. If you want to see evil, you will see evil. It it takes an amount of grace in your life to be able to look at someone else with grace and as I've said it multiple times if you're going to preach about radical grace saving people outside of their evil works then you better be living like that or else I'm going to feel like your gospel is garbage or you don't really believe it If you want to see evil, easiest thing you can do. You can find and see evil in anybody. I think it's also very interesting that Jesus here addresses Judas as friend. Again, we talked about how Jesus over and over said he's going to sit down and eat with sinners. In fact, he's called the friend of sinners. Now, In our way of viewing it, we view him as the friend of sinners, as in he was our friend when we were not very friendly with him. He was our friend when we were his enemy, and he died for his brothers and sisters when we hated his guts and spit in his face. So that's how we view it. But you also can view it like he really was just in general a pretty nice guy to anybody. Okay. Now, again, 
you go up against the Pharisees, there, there's a little bit of some niceness that gets pulled away from Jesus. But even then, he still sits down at dinner with them. Yeah, exactly. There is a portion of that. He's just telling them the truth, and that's true too. He still ate with them. Isn't that kind of funny? The Pharisees that he looks at and says, how can you escape hell, you bunch of vipers? He still sits down at dinner in their house. Along with prostitutes and, you know, other people generally recognized as people that you wouldn't eat dinner with. In fact, that some would actively say you shouldn't eat dinner with. Well, the Pharisees did that. How, if you knew that this woman was a prostitute, you wouldn't eat dinner with them because don't you know to remain holy and awesome? You can't do that. Jesus says, these are the people that I was sent for. You say I can't eat with them. Well, I'd be going against my whole purpose here in this world. I came to take care of the sick. I came to eat with prostitutes and sinners. I came for this purpose. And if we are going to call ourselves followers of Christ, it means we have to follow Christ in his same pattern. Do we get that? So Jesus here, even when Judas comes up to betray him, still calls him friend. It's a crazy amount of grace in that. He ate with him just a few hours before. He didn't say, "Eh, you know what? You're the betrayer and I can't fellowship with darkness. And so you need to get out of my house. He sat down and ate with him and actually said, hey, you know what? There's a dude dipping his hand in the cup with me that's going to betray me. And all of them are going, oh, wait, oh, wait, is it us? Is it us? Is it us? And Jesus is like, Judas, you, I mean, you know, you know, Judas, you know, it's you do. I mean, quit acting like you don't like, don't ask that question. How silly is that? You know that I know. And we all, you know, just. but he still dipped in the cup with him. It's a crazy amount of grace with that. Here, though, you have a fulfillment of Isaiah as well, where they've come to take him like a criminal because, as Isaiah 53 will tell us, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with, he was taken into account with robbers and thieves and criminals and other people that were arrested and tried and hanged and crucified and murdered and killed because that's just the lot of transgressors that's the lot of sinful bad people that's what happens when you break the law you get punished you're a transgressor of the law and so you get punished he was numbered with the transgressors it's just a weird situation because he wasn't a transgressor he wasn't a sinner In fact, in other places, it describes it as like the greatest injustice that humanity has ever known. That one who was sinless would die for sins he did not commit. From a natural human standpoint, even from a justice system standpoint, that would be considered an injustice. In fact, you'll see all the time now in the advent of DNA testing, they'll go back and they'll test all these people who were sitting in life or on death row. And then they'll go, whoops, we made a mistake. People who've been in prison for 10, 20, 30 years come back out and go, whoops, maybe you shouldn't have been given the death penalty. What you? It's a crazy, weird situation that that's possible, but we have a justice system that's not perfect. Thank God that he pushed DNA testing out there. And here we go. We can actually get some people who were wrongfully condemned free from prison. 
Jesus is the opposite in that he was wrongfully condemned for sins he never convicted, I mean, never committed, and he was convicted for them and ultimately paid the price for them, and he never did a single one of them. He was numbered with the transgression, with the transgressors, as that chapter says, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So he bore their sins, even though they weren't his own. He was numbered with them, even though he was not one of them. And in fact, in his being numbered with them, he was a intercessor for them. That is our savior. He's not one who from afar off made a lecture on a PowerPoint about salvation. He was numbered like us, suffered for what we deserved, and intercedes on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture of a gracious, merciful intercessor. One who did not shy away from getting into the nitty gritty with his dirty, nasty people. Now, what you see next is this scene that we all are familiar of for one of the disciples who John, the gospel of John. So you got like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels like we talk about. And there's a lot of things that John does not mention that Matthew, Mark, and Luke will mention. And then there's things that John mentions that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention that gives a lot of really cool insight into the story. That's why it's beautiful that God got four writers and not the first three. Okay, because there was things there that he revealed through John that you know, are not earth-shattering. They don't change the story. They don't make Jesus into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy versus a brown-skinned, brown-haired guy. They don't, nothing like that. Nothing crazy. But there are some very neat things he revealed. One of them, as we saw before, is John gives us the timeline, the six-day timeline. John also identifies Mary as the woman. Here, John tells us it's Peter who, very fittingly, would draw out his sword and hack off some dude's ear in this process. Because who's Peter? Peter is the man. Peter is the bold, brash, bravado, no way, no how. I've already told you, Jesus, that I'm not going to allow you to die anytime. So, you know, you're not going to die because I say so. And here, I'm not going to let these people arrest you because I'm Peter and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be the first one to draw the sword, make the brash action. We're going to nip this thing in the bud. That's how Peter is. So as John points out, it was Peter, who is the one of his servants, okay, who pulls out the sword and takes a swing at Malchus, who also is identified in John and not in the other ones. And Malchus is one of the high priest's servants, his guards. He chops off Malchus's ear. John puts it this way, and I'm going to read John's account of it. John chapter 18, starting at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek you? And they answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Now, that's a piece of information that's really neat to have in there. Remember the great I am? You tell them that the I am has come. The I am has sent you. Well, the I am just said, I am who you say I am and who you're looking for. And when that word went out, they fell backwards at the power of it. It's just so interesting. I can't explain all that, but it is weird, crazy, and interesting all at the same time. 
So then they kind of are stumbling back up off the ground and they're kind of dusting themselves off going, what in the world just happened then? And he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of them, which thou gave me, have I lost none. That's marker number one of submission to the will of God, but also submission to the word of God. You'll see Jesus say this over and over again. This is being allowed because this is what the word of God said would happen. Now, again, we talk about the weirdness of prophecy and that prophecy is not prophesying things that will come to pass, but rather prophecy. God inspired God given prophecy is not just prophecy about things that will come to pass, but things that have already come to pass in the mind of God. Okay, God's already said God is not sitting back at the beginning of the movie running through the reel going, okay, well, when we get to this one part, we need to make sure we intercede there with none of the disciples can be taken captive. God is sitting watching in a big bowl, so to speak, beginning to end. He knows what's done, has done, will done, was done. So when he prophesied back in the Old Testament, back here in the timeline, hey, this is what's going to happen at point B in the timeline. It's not that God does not know what's about to happen or he's telling you what will possibly happen. He's saying the end of the movie's already there. This is what is going to transpire. So Jesus isn't sitting here going, okay, well, I got to make sure that we don't lose any of them because if we lose any of them, then the scripture will be broken. Jesus is just drawing to attention to the fact that this is exactly what God said is going to happen. It's happening exactly how God said it would and how God intended it should happen. Okay. So keep that in mind as we're going through this. God, Jesus, the word is showing his submission to the word. Okay. So when God has told us none of them are going to be lost, Jesus doesn't say, well, but what if, or, but in this situation, but wouldn't it be more prudent? Jesus just says, God said, that's how it's got to be. That's just how it's got to be. God says that I have to suffer for the sins of many. I have to be numbered with the transgressors. I'm not arguing with that. God said, that's how it's got to be. That's how it's got to be. Don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels down right now and put all of this to an end? But why do I not? Because God said this is how it's got to be. So that goes the same for us. Are we submissive not only to the will of God that we can say in a prayer, I would love it, God, if this transgression, this trial, this issue, this whatever was done away with, let alone not my will but your will be done. If it is intended, if you want it, if this is for my, you know, whatever benefit, if you're trying to help me to quit suffering or you're helping me through suffering to grow, if you're, if you are refining me, if you're, whatever you're doing, however, this has got to shake out God, your will not mine be done because I know your will is smarter, better, and more for my benefit than my will is. Heard it said over and over again by a preacher that I, that I like a whole lot. You know, we are our own worst enemies. Okay. You are your own worst enemy, especially in spiritual things. You will trip yourself up more than anybody else will. You will cause yourself to stumble more than anybody else will. You will be your own worst enemy more than anybody else will. So that's why it is important for us to defer to God's will in everything and not rely on our own because our will is going to trip us up. 
It's always going to trip us up. It's always going to drive us. I mean, this is, this is the proverb. A man has a way in his own heart, and that way will ultimately lead to his death. He's got a great will in his heart, a will that will ultimately destroy him. If Jesus' will, if Je- and I know this is all hypothetical and can never really happen, but if Jesus' will had prevailed, we would not have. If Jesus in this moment of his prayer, if his will in that moment that this should pass, passed, then there is no sacrifice, there is no remission of sins, unless he had some other really cool, like I said, SEAL Team 6 way of doing things. You know, maybe that would have come out. Maybe he would have been like, hey, God, I got this great idea. We didn't have this idea back when the Trinity was talking about it billions of years ago, but now I've got it. It's a great way to fix this where I don't have to go to the cross. Maybe that would have been the case. But the will of Jesus as the human he was in that moment, if it had come to pass, we would have not. And so the fact that Jesus submits to God's will is that Jesus in that moment, and I know it's weird because Jesus is God, like they you know, wills are, are you know, joined in, in ways, but Jesus submitted to God's prevailing design and will in this moment. He said, no, Jesus, this is what, this is what we talked about before the world began. This is the thing that we discussed. This is the moment that we talked about. This is what we agreed to before the world began. And again, I I know when you put it in terms like that and you speak of it in that way, it seems really kind of weird because God and Jesus are who God and Jesus are. But that's why I wanted us to grab out the fact that he is embodying humanity in this moment. So think of it in that way. So Jesus is betrayed. In humanity terms, how do we feel about betrayal? Not very good, right? Doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel good when Judas, who's been hanging out with you for three and a half years, who you called to be one of your closest companions who you have had communion with, and you didn't do it with anybody else. Judas comes up and betrays me for like 30 pieces of silver. Come on, dude. You could have done better than that, right? Do I not fetch a little bit better price? Do I not even get like gold? I mean, do I not get something a little bit more substantial than just some, you know, half-priced silver? But beyond that, I have taken you in. You have been one of my own. And you have betrayed me. Beyond that, we also look at how the Jews betrayed Jesus. He came to his own and his own received him not. My own people. My Jews. My chosen, my elected, my people who I've given the oracles to, who I have provided everything for, who I have established and given all these promises and have dealt with all of their grief for hundreds of years. You who I have promised a Messiah, here I am and you have betrayed me. And then lastly, of course, we have Peter who we're going to look at. But three points to take away from this one event, and we've kind of already talked about it. Number one is Jesus' perfect humbleness in this moment. Now, like I said, you can see plenty of YouTube videos of people who are not very humble when they're getting arrested. 
and you say, oh, yeah, well, there's, there's, you know, people just don't know how to respond to police or whatever. I'm just saying I've seen and heard plenty of people who have had that same kind of good Christian response to a cop who's pulled them over when they've been driving 85 in a 45. Well, this is a speed trap. This is a bunch of garbage. How do you know? What are, are you So don't act like somehow we're immune to this. We all get that same way. Okay. Jesus here is getting arrested. Perfectly humble. Tells Peter, why are you pulling out your sword, dude? This is, this is what's got to be. And in fact, Peter, I'm going to give you a warning. Everyone who takes up the sword in this manner is going to die by it. That's not like a completely passive, anti-war, anti-fighting kind of kind of motif there. But it is definitely something that should be considered by a vast majority. I just saw, again, as I kind of talked about the impetus for doing all these series, was to talk about, hopefully, getting Christians to be more like Christ. And one of the pivotal statements that is found that I found that just kind of sparked all this was a politician who professes to be this, you know, embodiment of all things godly and super Christian brings it up all the time. But also made comments around that same time about how he would like to just basically drop nukes on the Middle East and turn the whole thing to glass. Like, well, the problem with that is. There's a lot of God's people in those countries that you have just vaporized for your, your little whatever stance this is with you. So I'm just really finding a hard discrepancy between, between Jesus' teachings, what you profess to follow, but what you just said. Okay? And that just that was on my mind again this morning because I read an article. I think it actually came from uh, September, but it was actually talking about the explosion and one of the fastest growing Christian church movements at this moment is in Iran. It's a majority and it, and it has no church body. There's no head. There's no like church. There's no building. Okay. Even in China, even though it's exploding and has been exploding and there's some stuff and there's back and forth with China and all this, but there's still groups who can gather and meet in a centralized location for the most part. And it is accepted and it's okay. Iran, that's not the case. You don't get to hang a sign out in Iran. Fastest growing Christian church movement is in Iran. A place right now that you will hear a lot of people talk about, we should carpet bomb it to smithereens. Well, that's great. You've just bombed out the fastest Christian movement in the world. We have to be careful about what we say. Jesus Christ was not an American. Nor did he say America was the new Jerusalem that was going to conquer the world and own it. In fact, throughout the entire Bible, the entire New Testament, the entire church movement, we have been a people disconnected from a national government. When he tells the Jews here, I'm going to reestablish a kingdom that is going to expand across the globe. The whole theme of it was, it's not going to be the Jewish kingdom you think it was going to be. It's going to be one that embodies kindreds and nations and tongues that do not possess real estate in Israel. 
So that's a very important takeaway from this. Jesus is saying, take the humble route in this manner. If you take up the sword and go swinging and fighting to fight your way to victory and all this stuff, he says, guess what? You're just going to ultimately die by it and it's going to cause no, no, no difference in all this. All you have to do is take a very natural look in history. Maybe we're going to get into that on Wednesday nights with our church history thing. But let's just fast forward to the Crusades. Let's see the big Christian world movement that the Crusades accomplished when we took up the sword to go kill a bunch of people to establish a, a Christian kingdom. Didn't really work, did it? And a lot of people died by it on both sides. Jesus is making another point about the fact that my kingdom will not be established by the sword. I did not create a kingdom like Muhammad that is based on war. I did not create it like even the Jewish kingdoms in multiple phases that are based off of war. I didn't do that. You're not cleaning out Palestine. You're not cleaning out Galilee. You're not cleaning out wherever it may be, Mecca or wherever. You're not clean. That's not what this is about. My kingdom is going to conquer the world and never lift a sword. And it's going to be conquering and never be defeated without ever taking up a sword. The only sword that it embodies. The only sword it embodies is the sword of the spirit and the sword of the word of God that he said is sharper than any sword. So he takes a humble, restrained, avoiding retribution, avoiding evil intentions, avoiding aggression in this moment. Second thing he does is there's an acceptance of God will, God's will like we talked about and an acceptance of God's word that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was submissive to God's will in these situations, no matter how it turned out. And he obeyed the word of God, no matter what it said. Word of God said that I'm supposed to be taken with the transgressors. Guess I'll be taken with the transgressors. Might be a little unfair on my part since I haven't done anything wrong, but that's what God's word said. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus says, love your neighbors. I guess I'm going to do it. Why? Because that's what the word of God says. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus says, husbands, love your wives. I guess that's what I'm going to do because that's what God told me to do. It's just that simple. Isn't that simple? Don't we just like simple? I mean, if you ever cracked open like a calculus book, not that simple. So I don't like it. Okay. This is very simple. Right? And as we saw from last week's sermon, math isn't my strong suit. So this is very simple. It's the simplest modus operandi you can have for your life. The word of God says it, so I guess I have to do it. Interestingly enough, the woman that was, inter- that was interviewed, P.S., the woman, okay, that was interviewed in that article, and there's a video with it too that I want to watch. Majority of the leaders in that church movement over there are women, and you know what they're doing? They're going out almost. It reminded me so much of Lydia. It's just women have gone out. They're sitting down with other women by the riverside having a prayer group. It's women going out and talking to other women at the market going, hey, have you heard about this guy, Jesus? And miraculously, they'll go, is that the dude from my dreams that I had last night? It is so spectacular. But anyway, the women, okay, that are over there leading that and doing that, same thing that we see you... It's really, 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 really important for us 
to make sure that we are simply just doing what God's word tells us to do. No matter the tradition, no matter the perceived cultural expectation, no matter what it may be, it's just really important for us to do what God's word tells us to do. It's just that simple. And the thing is, is that if we did that, how easy that would be for us. You say, oh, but it's really hard loving your neighbor. I'm not saying that the actions are not difficult, but you don't have a lot of hemming and hawing about it. I wish Sharon was here for me to say that. You don't have a lot of hemming and hawing. There's not a lot of, well, but I mean, what about this? It's like, well, but God just, I, I don't know how God intended for this to work out in this situation. I just know God said it. So let's go do it. Very simple. The last point from that was Peter's bravado and dedication. This kind of fight to the death. You ain't taking my Jesus kind of thing that he did here is really funny in contrast to what's going to happen here in just a few verses. So you see the final betrayal here where everyone bolts and leaves Jesus as he's taken away. Now, 57, he says, And they had laid hold on Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off, unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought fault witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. And the last came, and at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Answers thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of a witness? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think you? They answered him and said, He is guilty of death. Then they spit on his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, thou Christ, who is it that smote you? Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came to him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what you say. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came to him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said to him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now this scene that you see here, the false witnesses, again, it kind of ties into what we were talking about with, if you want to see evil in someone, that's all you'll see. 
Okay, here the funny thing is, is that the actions of Jesus were so compelling in their goodness that you couldn't find anybody to say anything otherwise. They brought all of these witnesses because they just wanted a couple false, fake witnesses to say, oh, yeah, we saw him swindle this dude. Or, oh, yeah, we saw him say that Rome was the devil. And, oh, we saw him say that the Jews are all going to hell. And then all these things they were looking for and they were like. Really, we can't find anybody who will speak negatively about what Jesus did because Jesus never did anything negative. Remember, Jesus taught that a fruit, that the tree will be known by its fruit. Okay, that you can look at a tree's fruit and know what the tree's heart is in that manner. His fruit being his actions and what he did. And what we see here is that the fruit of Jesus was so good that nobody was able to come up and even tell falsely that he did something bad. They didn't have anything to go off of. They had no actions that they could say, well, Jesus did this one time and it could be perceived to be. Nope, nobody could be found that could say Jesus did anything negative. And they needed two to three witnesses to be able to condemn him to death. That was Jewish law, remember? So they had a real pickle here. They were trying to find some reason to condemn him to death. But unfortunately, his actions were just so good, nobody could tell anything negative about him. That should almost be a testimony for us. Really important for us. If your actions are so good that no one can speak ill of you, then you're doing pretty good in this world. All your words, all your statements, all your brash whatevers don't match up, don't count if your actions aren't there with it. That's what gets us through. That's what shows to the world who we really are. In fact, you could stay silent the whole time, but your actions would speak for you in those moments. There's a lot of times that's what Jesus did. He didn't answer. He didn't say anything to the people when they were asking Jesus about throwing stones at the prostitute. He's just, I mean, the adulteress. He's just down there writing in the ground. Doesn't even open his mouth. His actions spoke louder than his words. But what they did get him on was his teachings and his doctrine. This fellow said, I will destroy the temple in three days. I mean, I will destroy the temple of God and in three days build it up again. That got him. That was something they could go off of. That was something that they could latch on to. It was true. That's what Jesus said. It wasn't false. It wasn't fake. That is what he said. So now we've got him. This guy said he was going to destroy the temple of God. What a blasphemous anti-God thing to do. Even though, you know, kind of comically, Jesus is like, just wait a couple of decades, you're going to see that actually come true. The literal temple of God, the real physical temple of God, you're going to see it destroyed by God. He's going to do it. It's a woe pronounced on you. But that being opposite of the case here, we know, and as the Bible explains, it was talking about his body. And that the body was the temple of God that he was going to destroy. And in three days, God was going to raise it up again. But he was also heralding the bringing up of the kingdom that was going to rise with him. A kingdom, a temple, a force that was going to spread out and dominate the world way beyond any physical building located in the Middle East. So they attacked him on his teachings and his doctrine. When they asked him about being the son of God, he retorted, 
you have said, but soon you will see the son of man, which was the messianic kind of description that they used for the Christ, say you will see him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, son of man, was ascribed to Jesus multiple times in his ministry. And here then they were able to say, see, this man says he is like God. That is blasphemy. You all heard it. Got my two or three witnesses. What's your answer? Well, he blasphemed. And according to Leviticus, that means you stone him to death. So we have our death sentence. Now, at this point in time in their occupation, they didn't have the opportunity or the ability to take him out and stone him. So they then have to turn him over to the Roman authorities. But you notice how they attacked him on his teachings. They were not incorrect, right? We all agree. What Jesus taught was right, right? What was the problem with it from their point of view? It attacked them. It attacked their tradition. It broke down the power structure that they had built up by their own. You teach for doctrine the traditions of men. You have established your power structure on the traditions of men. And when Jesus then comes in and blows all those traditions out of the water with the word of God, even though it was the word of God and was 100% accurate and true, you're messing with my power, you're messing with my stuff, And now I've got a problem with you. The preaching of the doctrines of Jesus should make us all uncomfortable at times. Would we agree with that? The teachings of the doctrines of Jesus should make us all uncomfortable at times. It should challenge us. It should make us question all the things we feel so sure about. It was a radical thing. His teachings, and they still are, were a radical, are a radical thing. Jesus freely sat down with sinners. He worshiped with prostitutes and drug addicts and fornicators and liars and murderers. He fellowshiped with all these people. That's a radical thing. He did it without question. And sometimes he even kind of bragged about it saying, hey, these are the people I came. These are my people. I came for these people. Physician doesn't come to heal well people. He comes to heal sick people. I got to go to sick people if I'm going to heal sick people. And these are sick people. So he even kind of bragged about it. And he teaches us to do the same, to have that kind of radical grace should make us all uncomfortable. That's just how it is because that's not who we are naturally. Naturally, we have prejudices. Naturally, we have established social orders. Naturally, we have perceived things about people. And that's how we operate is under our perceptions. Always laugh because give it a hundred years, your perceptions are actually look a lot different than they were a hundred years ago. Think about the different cultural things in our world today compared to how it was a hundred years ago. Think about how the fact a thousand years ago in like royal families, brothers and sisters married and nobody really seemed to have a big qualm about it. Now we're like, that's repulsive. Lots of times perceptions change. So they're not the thing that we should be basing how we operate with people off of. We need to operate how Jesus operated with gracious, radical Mercy. And then you have Peter's denial to kind of close out this section. You had Jesus tried, Jesus beaten, Jesus mocked. 
But then you have Peter's denial, the last thing, and you know, in, in one of the Gospels, I think it's John, they like lock eyes at, at Peter's last denial. They like lock eyes and make the point, okay, well, you know, this was the moment I told you was going to happen. But you remember how Peter started out. <laughs> Number one, several chapters back, he tells Jesus, nope, you're not going to die, I'm not going to let you. Then he goes and says, nope, we're not going to let them take you. I'll pull my sword. I'll cut anybody. I'll do whatever I got to do. But you're not going to be taken from me. I love you. If everyone else leaves you, I will never leave you, Lord. I am Peter. I am the rock. I am bravado, brash, bold. You got to love him for that. Much better than the rest of the disciples in this case. At least Peter went to the trial the other ones have already taken off they're already so scared for their lives they're bolting the doors what is it annie bar the door is that the is that the phrase they're already doing that okay katie bar the door there you go annie katie annie get your gun katie bar the door together you have a pretty good defense okay but you remember how brazen he was but where is the bravado where is the boldness where is that now when the, when the rubber is actually meeting the road, where is that same fervor? Instead, he has turned that fervor for defending Christ into rejecting Christ. Three different occasions. First time he starts off with an oath. Then he goes on to a curse. And then he goes on to swearing. Each time amplifying his denial of Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. Wasn't me. I'm not going to. That's not. I wasn't with him. You got the wrong guy. Interestingly enough, the word curse there that is used is the Greek word kata anathema or katathenema. Anathema is a word that Paul uses in one of his letters when he talks about people who reject, rebel, or disparage Christ. He says they're anathema, which means basically they're a curse. Get rid of them. In other sections of like 1 Corinthians in two different chapters, he used the same thing. One of them he says is no man under the power of the Holy Spirit can call Jesus cursed, anathema. Okay, So this is a variation of that word. G- Peter here is denying, cursing his relationship with Jesus. That's what he's trying to convince these people of. My relationship with Jesus is anathema. It doesn't exist. Okay? So he is not just flippantly denying. He is not just kind of avoiding the question. It's not like they ask him and he's kind of like, well, well, but have you seen this guy over here? He looks like he's from Galilee too. It's not that case. He's actually actively trying to persuade people, this is not me I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a very bleak kind of picture you see. What I find interesting is that when you fast forward, Jesus does not leave Peter in this place, does he? Jesus actually goes, finds Peter when Peter has given up and is now out there fishing. Jesus actually goes, finds Peter, brings him to the shore, admonishes him, loves on him. And the next scene you see Peter as he's standing up at Pentecost proclaiming the power of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said he doesn't leave even one sheep on the mountainside caught in the brambles and just says, well, they got themselves in that mess. That's where I'm going to leave them. 
this is where you see it play out. Peter denied Jesus in a much more vocal way than any of his other disciples did. The other ones just ran off. Peter's not, no, I swear to you, I do not know this man. That's an active, purposeful denial. And Jesus, in our mentality, would have had all reasons to go, Peter, you know what? Maybe you are anathema. I can't use a man like you. Instead, Jesus says, no, we're going, come on, Peter. Come on back to the shore. Put your clothes back on. Let's get, let's quit fishing. I've actually got some bigger fish for you to fry. We've got some stuff for you to do, Peter. And now this is what you're going to do. Go feed my sheep. Boom. 50 days later, we're at Pentecost and we are firing brimstone and people like, I mean, we're doing all sorts of stuff. And that's because of the restorative work of Jesus Christ in Peter's life. He didn't leave that sheep stranded on the island out there fishing and doing his own life saying, well, you cursed me one too many times and I'm done with you. He said, no, 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 Peter. You have not even begun your work for me. It's kind of like how he caught Paul and pulled Paul and said, yeah, I know you've been killing all my Christians for, you know, however long. I know that's been going on, but guess what? I've got this greater plan for you. You know what my plan for you is? My plan for you is to suffer your entire life for my name's sake. Amen and hallelujah. Isn't that great? Now take off, Paul. And by the way, you're blind. Have fun. Stumble on over there to Ananias. Find your way. But this is how your journey's going to start. And by golly, it's going to end in a, such a glorious fashion. And Paul the whole time says, man, this is the life. said, everything I had before this was cow poop compared to this. That is a weird, weird mentality to have, but it's a mentality that is countercultural and it's one done by the restorative work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave his sheep stranded. He brings them to where he wants them to be doing what he's called them and made them to do. So we have to ask the question on our own minds. Is this us? Do we fear being rejected for being a follower of Christ? Do we fear for radically loving people like Christ being rejected for that? How many people, how many politicians, how many, you know, of these people right now are going to stand up and profess their undying love for the people of Iran because of the Christian movement that's there? Politically not savvy to do at this moment, is it? For loving and forgiving like Christ? For extending miraculous grace like Christ? Are we too afraid of what doing what Christ commanded us to do will cause as far as our acceptance on Facebook, our followers on Twitter, or our buddies that sit with us at the lunch table? It is important for us to grab that being like Christ means that sometimes and a lot of times there's a lot of people who are not going to be okay with that. And unfortunately, some of those people are going to be professing Christians. All you and I can do is go back and say, that's just what Jesus told me to do. Jesus told me to have compassion in this moment. Jesus told me to have forgiveness in this moment. Jesus told me to love this prostitute in this moment. I'm sorry, socially and culturally, that's not acceptable to you. But that's just what Jesus told me to do. And if the word of God tells me to do it, that's what I'm going to do. So may God bless us to have that boldness.